You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. Firstly, I just wanted to say a massive thank you um, for everyone joining me today. Uh, Of course, we're going to be discussing the topic, how can insight teams improve stakeholder satisfaction? Um, So before we get started, I'd just like to go around and everyone do a quick introduction to themselves. Um, That'd be great. So if Dave, if if you'd like to go first, that'd be great. Uh, Of course. So yeah, hi everyone. I'm Dave Warder. Um, I am Head of Data Analytics at Canby, which is a B2B sports betting platform supplier. Uh, Within my role, I cover uh, two main departments. Um, One is the data-led insight function. And the second is uh, self-service reporting. Perfect. Thank you very much for that introduction, David. Natalie, if you'd like to go next, that'd be lovely. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Natalie Salim. Um, I'm the data and analytics uh, lead at Moyang, so the makers of Minecraft. Uh, I'm leading mainly the Stockholm office, and then it's a lot of collaboration with the Stockholm office and the Redmond office in the US. So we do both data analytics and uh, yeah, operational um, analysis. Yeah, that's me. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much for that, Natalie. And Daniel, last but not least, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that'd be lovely. Sure. Uh, my name is Daniel Tidström. I'm working as a um, consultant and partner at DataEdge, a fairly newly founded data analytics uh, uh, consulting firm. Uh, prior to that, I've been working in the sort of data analytics and business space for a long time now. Um, and the last few years, I've been on a leadership path. So I was. Um, um, at Cambi before David, so I hope he's not sort of having too much time sorting out my mess there. Uh, and then I've been leading analytics teams at NodeNet, Epidemic Sound, <clears throat> and I'm currently on a consulting assignment as a product insights lead at Spotify and Soundtrap. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's my background. And in terms of interests, it's sort of we're interested in music, so Spotify Soundtrap is perfect for me. But also very jealous on uh, Natalie. I'm a big sort of passionate gamer, and I've never worked with analytics inside the gaming space. So uh, super jealous. It's a cool area to be in. <laughs> I can imagine. I love Minecraft and and many other games, of course. And I can imagine um, that's one of the benefits of being a consultant, though. You never know where you'll end up next to you, Daniel, I suppose. Uh, exactly. I'm, um, hopefully that's Natalie has some needs in the future. <laughs> we're not actually in the gaming space yet. We have quite a lot of good customers that we have worked with uh, in many sort of different sort of tech uh, corners of Stockholm, but not gaming yet. <laughs> well, we'll keep our eyes peeled then, won't we? <laughs> Lovely. Well, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for your introductions. Uh, I'll just jump straight in now with the first question. Um, and this one is from uh, from David. So um, the, David's question is, what are the most important skills for insight teams? So if David, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind your question, and then I'll let everyone sort of jump in. Yeah, of course. So, so this question is born out of the mess that Daniel left behind at Canby. Um, only kidding. Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting question and it, it kind of goes around quite a lot. But when we think about what skills an insight team needs, it, it tends to break out into two different streams. 
Um, one is very well understood, which is the technical stream. And the second is one that hasn't been so much focused on, which is those soft skills. Um, and the reason I wanted to ask this question is because, quite frankly, when I started as a manager, I made a, a mistake and I focused very heavily on the technical aspects and developing the technical aspects of the team. Whereas now I recognise there's there should be much more of a focus on those soft skills. Um, and effectively, when you think about the impact and the potential impact that uh, a data analyst can have, for example, unless they're able to communicate with their stakeholders, they're not going to have any impact. They're going to be ineffective and they're going to be totally inefficient. And that's that's obviously bad for the business, but more importantly, it's bad for the data analyst because they're they're not uh, getting the um, the feedback. They're not having the impact they want. They're not um, progressing and seeing the the outcome of their endeavours. So I wanted to raise that if that's a a common approach uh, within the industry. Yeah, so I'm uh, hearing that, and it's so cool because I, I I recognize that aspect that the soft skills are so much more important than the technical skills, um, especially in certain companies that I've seen where they've kind of like they kind of use the insights team as a I don't know a way of proving the direction they want to go instead of using the insights team as what is the direction we should be going. And that was like, so why is that? It's usually dependent on that the stakeholder is a person and so they have to like build trust. So I think to answer your question about like what skills, I'd say storytelling, like making them really understand the data. It's uh, empathy to like actually connect with the stakeholder. And Active listening is probably the third one I would say, like actually trying to understand what the stakeholder wants, because then it's easier to actually guide them in that direction. But yeah, it's those skills are a bit hard to interview for. <laughs> yeah. At least that, that is my experience, at least. So. Yeah, but I, I totally agree as well, it's, and it's a uh, it's it's a very good question. Uh, I think also that that I have progressed into the same conclusion that the soft skills are first of all like the most important because uh, leading any kind of analytics organization, we we do indirect contributions, uh, so we need to sort of carry over the meaning of what we actually communicate in an actionable way because we. Quite rarely, we sort of do any direct impact. Um, so, so that is sort of actually that what has led me into into the company that we have right now, where we're focusing not only on the technical aspect, where there are plenty of consultants, but also trying to get the management part of it in. So, because I mean, it we need to work, be able to work with the data. We need to derive some kind of insights from the data, but then we need to also enforce and drive action. In the businesses where we are and so, so that's one perspective and i think when it comes to recruitment also i agree with natalie that it's really hard but it's probably also the, the more stable of the skill sets because the the sort of the data infrastructure has changed rapidly in the last five six years and it's basically on like the third iteration so you need to 
like technical knowledge is not a permanent it's something that evolves all the time the same with uh, like python frameworks or r frameworks and packages it moves all the time so really having the ability to to frame a problem in a good way find a way of attacking that problem uh and then figuring out sort of what tool to use uh, a lot of the time, because a lot of the change, challenges that we get in data science space are quite unique. Uh, but then, of course, communication, driving actionable actionability and uh, impact. So we, uh, I've been talking a lot about sort of how to, how to get to impact, uh, um, which is the, probably the most important thing. I'd, I'd really agree with the, the point you made in there about the um, the stability. Um, communication is one of those skills that's permanent and it's it's very transferable to a lot of different uh, applications. Whereas, as you say, the tech stack is constantly evolving. You might be an expert in Python, but what's coming next? Whereas if you've got those skills like communication, that stays with you um, and it's, it's going to kind of it's going to be able to uh, launch you wherever you need to go, whereas you need to repeatedly develop it. Yeah, and I, I, now I have a huge echo from you, David, I think. Uh, thanks. No, but I, I think, um, yeah, but, but what, I, what I've seen as one breaker is like, also, when when it comes to recruitment, sort of listening to how, like how uh, data scientists, for example, communicate. If it's very much like focusing on the receiver of the information, or focusing a lot on the methodology of how the analysis was done, and I, I think it's better to downplay. I mean, of course, we need a solid methodology behind our conclusions, obviously, uh, but it's not necessarily sort of important to go into the maths behind the solution for for a business person, rather sort of. This is the conclusion. These are the potential actions, and uh, uh, lay the emphasis on that. I'd probably go further than that. Say it's definitely not needed to, to go into the maths. Um, in, in probably the majority of cases, the audience just doesn't care. Um, when when we're kind of presenting what we're doing, there's always that uh, desire to to validate what we've been doing. A month's worth of work into a five minute presentation, it feels really unnatural you want to demonstrate the the difficulty and the complexity of it but it's not going to have any impact with your stakeholder they want to know what's coming out of this what's the outcome what's the decision they can make with this information i think it's it's, it's quite a normal thing is that when we present insight or um, models or whatever it may be to an audience we can tend to focus on our perspective and not theirs and that's really dangerous because unless we're speaking in their language unless we're focusing on their decision and not ours they're going to get lost it's just not important to them i would take it one step further that it doesn't matter if we're just presenting what they want to hear then they're anyway going to make that decision However, whatever data we're going to present, the big thing is going to be when we present data that doesn't validate their own thoughts. And that is a skill to be able to present it in a way that makes the stakeholder feel comfortable in changing their decision. 
that is the skill that I'm looking for in, in an analyst. Yeah, I mean, perhaps I should be a little bit clearer. Um, when I say validation, I mean validation for the analyst in that their the work is being recognised by the business. Um, I think there's there's certainly always a challenge of uh, presenting to those who have anecdote behind them, uh, who have a bias and who have an intended result before you present to them, and the the challenge of influencing them and persuading them that maybe that that anecdote isn't actually what's happening at scale. But I, I totally agree with you, Natalie, and I, I'm probably going to revisit that statement on, on my question a, a bit. Uh, I think like how important integrity is for an insight team. Uh, but I also have a fun anecdote from Cambi, actually. Uh, one, one data scientist I, I hired uh, back in the days, he has left the company, uh, and I will, I will not name him. Uh, but he actually said during interviews that my, my job as a data scientist is to prove people wrong. Because if I just confirm what we already think, then we have wasted time. Finding the, the corner cases and the stuff that we don't know that will actually drive actual change, that's the important thing. And that was, I've never heard that in an interview before, but that's really stuck to me. No, it's great. I love that. I love that quote. Uh, before we move on to the next question, did anybody else have anything at, um, else to add to that? I, I think maybe something that I'd like to, to add to it, actually, and it's kind of the thought behind the question, and it comes back to recruitment again. Um, if I've got a choice between two people, one who is uh, a world-class Python programmer with a phenomenal analytical mind, but zero communication skills, and I have a second person who can only use Excel, but is able to translate that to C-suite. Who do I want in my organization? And if I'm, if I'm thinking kind of in terms of immediate impact, then it's going to be the good communicator every time because they will have impact in the, the short term. Obviously, there's an argument for development, but I would rather have a good communicator who can uh, release value than someone who is effectively working just for themselves and won't benefit the business. Yeah, I, I think one of the things there is also the willingness to learn communication skills because there is there is analysts who just want to be good at the technical aspects but don't want to be part do the communication. That's going to be really hard to translate into impact within a company. But if you are very heavy on the tech side but are willing to learn the communication side, you can build that skill up um, in the long run, but there has to be a willingness. Definitely, I um, I definitely agree. And going back to sort of the the recruitment side and and that sort of thing, I, d I definitely agree. I think it is very it is very hard to interview um, for the soft skills, um, but it's and it, I find it. Um, quite funny that 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 was sort of uh, mentioned that as well because when when people put a job advert out and that sort of thing a lot of the time the soft skills aren't even mentioned but when it does come down to the decision and that sort of thing it is always sort of the soft skills that that actually um the employer wants and that is what they need and that that sort of breaks them away from the rest 
Um, so it's quite interesting that you did touch on that actually, because that's that's what I always find find anyway. It's it's the soft skills that um, sort of separate um, the the candidate that will get the job to sort of who won't and that sort of thing. I, 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 I have sort of sorry. Go on, Daniel. I just have a short sort of very vaguely defined metric that is a good proxy, and that is sort of the ratio between questions asked and questions answered. Uh, I found that candidates that like bombard me with questions during an interview, that's a very good proxy metric for a good hire because it sort of shows curiousness. You can follow their train of thoughts and you, it's, it's a good way for a manager as well because you can sort of very easily just follow that discussion to somewhere interesting. Um, so that's, that's a good sort of hands-on tip. We'll have to add that onto last week's podcast. <laughs> um, and if I could raise one more thing, um, possibly aiming back at the um, the topic for this uh, for this podcast and improving stakeholder satisfaction. So, obviously, we have identified that communication is one of the skills um, that's really important. Now, we've talked about a bit about recruitment. Let's talk about recruitment outside of our world. One buzzword that we're probably all familiar with or buzz phrase is data literacy. And we're trying to, to pull the rest of the business towards us with their knowledge and upskill there. But that, that puts all of that weight of uh, development on the business. We, I think we also need to look quite introspectively and think, okay, how do we close this literacy gap? And for want of a better phrase, we need to focus on our business literacy. So that's making sure that we understand the operating model, we understand uh, what people are doing in their roles, the language they use, and actually putting in that effort from our side to meet the business. We can't put all this expectation on them to be data literate so that they can understand us. We should also take some responsibility for working on being able to translate to the business. Did Daniel, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, well, I, I think you're perfectly right. Um, I was just sort of thinking if I should add anything or if we should move on. I don't know. You have to tell us about the time. I just don't want to sort of I could probably talk one hour about this topic alone. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think it's good, but it's also it's also very hard. I think that's the hardest part of our jobs. I, I sort of come to the conclusion that it's potentially we have the hardest work, hardest jobs there are because we need to be able to communicate from a backend engineer, sort of building the product instrumentation so that we get data in the right shape. Uh, all the way up to C-level uh, and across all functions in the company, marketing, product, sales, like it's tough as well. So I think it needs to go both ways, which is sort of part of my question as well, that you can't just hire an insight team and uh, expect to become data-driven. You, you need to work very holistically with the whole area. But of course, not taking away the, the business uh, knowledge from the analysts. Natalie, did you have anything to add to that just before we move on to the next question? 
No, I think I'll add it to the other questions, I think, um, because they do tie into each other. Certainly. So, well, I'll go ahead and um, go ahead with the next question now. Um, so this is uh, Natalie's question. So how do you form good relationships with the product teams yet continue to be objective in your analysis? Um, so Natalie, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question and then we'll um, go ahead and jump right in. Yeah, so I've been in so many different companies and they've organized themselves in different ways. Um, there's often this centralized approach versus embedded approach versus teams approach. And it's always trying to capture this aspect of how do we get analysts close to the stakeholder, yet at the same time being a, an objective analyst in that team because that that is what one of the values an analyst brings to the table is being a bit objective being on the outside looking in some of the ways of addressing that that i've seen is like yeah organizing that they are fully embedded in the team but they report separately or you put up process structures where there's peer review and you peer review each other's works i would like to hear like are there other ways that you've addressed this um, within your structures or within your processes? I can go, uh, I guess. <clears throat> I think it's, yeah, as I mentioned before as well, a very relevant question. And I think, I think it's easy perhaps if at least when you're maybe starting out in this career to sort of be helpful but helpful isn't always doing what you're told uh, it's sort of providing value that is actionable and i think being helpful and sort of not giving the full picture it's uh, potentially maybe a short-term gain but for sure it's a long-term problem because product analytics like an analytics organization that lose the integrity and the perception of being a partner where you can reach out and get facts and not so many opinions. I think that is super critical to build long-term trust and also long-term good relationships. So yeah, that, that's like the important thing. And then sort of how to do it, I think it's it's very different. I've also been in very different cases, but try to put like a filter on any requests that come in so that you can sort of select the, the important ones. Uh, I've the last few years tried to use a framework that sort of uh, uh, connects like the data to what kind of insights we can draw, what kind of actions we can take and what outcome those actions will contribute to so that we connect the, the sort of data layer all the way to the business layer. So if you put that framework as a lens on top of the request that comes in, you can sort of filter them out and sort of, yeah, I want another dashboard. Okay, but do you really need that? What kind of decisions will you take on it? Or uh, can you prove this business case for me? And it's like, no, that's not our job. Uh, so being a bit picky there, I think is uh, quite important. And I think that builds long-term trust as well. Um, but then it's very different also how, how companies work. I mean, the last com few companies, at least Epidemic Sound and Spotify has been very sort of outcome centered. So we have like OKRs dictating what, 
what problems to solve and we have empowered teams that has like the designer, the PI person, the product manager, but really focusing on what to build and uh, and why to build, really understanding sort of the, the, the problem space that we're attacking and then going into sort of solution space and working with prototypes and experiments and so on. And then it sort of becomes very much a numbers game when, when you get that rolling, which simplifies things a bit. Uh, so that is also part of my questions, like what, what do we need to expect from the organizations that we work with to really maximize our impacts? We can, we can do one part of it, but there must be a readiness as well to, uh, to accommodate insights, which can be painful sometimes. I mean, uh, most companies that start running A-B tests and experiments is a horrible experience because none of them sort of shows any good results. Uh, but the difference from before is, is, is just that now we know that what we have done before didn't also like produce any results. So you, you, it, it's, I think it's a maturity uh, journey uh, very much. Yeah, I mean, there's lots, lots to unpack there. Um, I, I would agree that requests are just that, they're just requests. And hidden behind that request is what a what a customer really wants um, and we can take that time to explore that in a in a lot more detail so they might be requesting a dashboard but that's limited by their uh, their current knowledge of what's available to them and that's that's not necessarily the solution space um, going back to a word as well that cropped up earlier um, we as uh, analytical teams we're there to provide support and that doesn't necessarily mean it's always positive it can be very constructive too and i think an important thing to, to to create is integrity if you have integrity and you uh, are happy and not maybe not happy but you are um, as professional with your uh, constructive results or your negative results as your positive results you build that credibility and you build um, that integrity and you become a trusted partner. Uh, something else that I wanted to add was kind of around responsibilities of your stakeholders. And that, that can be a real challenge. Um, what are they actually responsible for? Um, and this, this question was kind of around product teams and that they can be quite tricky to work with um, because they might have different measures of success to, to other departments their measure of success might be just delivery rather than optimization. And that, that makes it a very different type of conversation that you need to have with them. And it's very likely to be a different kind of relationship. If they are motivated to optimize, then you're likely to have a much more productive conversation. They'll want to listen to the information sources. Whereas if it's just delivery, there's not going to be that follow up or that interest in how something's actually performing. Um, I said there are a few things to unpack. I've only got one more point, I think, on, on uh, what Daniel said there, which is around A-B testing. Um, it, it's all kind of a very cultural piece is how willing are we as a business to accept insights and to use them as a, an information source? And when it comes to A-B testing, um, there are various different um, reports that have been done. 
I think Microsoft said only 33% of their tests uh, prove a positive result. Um, and there's a, a phrase that kind of describes the the role of analysts or those running the A-B test when they're talking to um, the stakeholders is that sadly our role is to tell you that your baby is ugly and it's a it's, it's not a very nice thing to have to say to someone but sometimes it has to be done. How do you, How do you uh, uh, enable your team to say that that your baby is ugly or like because that that is kind of like one of the things that it's a way of being object objective towards your stakeholders like that you become the one saying like this is not right but how do you enable it to an analyst who feels like scared of reporting to someone who's a product manager or scared of saying that to someone who's director of whatever it could be um, yeah it's uh it's it's a, I think it's a double-edged sword a bit because I, I think it's also I, I I of course try to encourage people on to David's word again integrity is like super critical for their career just sort of implant, planting that idea into sort of the backbone of who they are I mean it's being an analyst it's not about opinion it's not about thinking things sometimes you have to say just we don't know uh, other times you have to say that we know exactly and this is like the confidence interval of how sure we are uh, but also talking to talking to the stakeholders and making them uh, I mean as a manager I think I've spent more time with stakeholders than I spend with my team just making them understand that just because the number appears to be what you would like it to be it's not necessarily the best thing uh, it's like I mean, things are what they are. It's just like, are we looking at it from the right perspective? And the more we know, the better decisions we can take. Sometimes that learning is painful, but it it will it will repay itself uh, after a while because all all things get so much easier. Uh, but it needs to be be part of of the culture of the stakeholders as well. To because I, I've been to so so many places where there's like, yeah, we don't know enough, and it's like. Yeah, but I can't work with that. You need to tell me what questions would we like to have answered, and then you need to do a stack rank, and then we can start from the top and uh, take one piece at a time. But just sort of saying that we don't understand enough and using that as, an, as as an excuse, I think, is something that we we need to address from our perspective and point that out and say that that's not a constructive solution to the problem. Uh, Rather than seeing that we have sort of talked about analytical debt, meaning things that we should know but don't know. Uh, and I mean, what we should focus on is not the debt, but the down payment, the plan for paying paying off the debt. Um, so that's one analogy that uh, we have uh, used in some places. Yeah, I think we've, we've probably all come across the um, the kind of question, can you give us some insights around this? And it, it turns the problem from not just being a needle in a haystack to a needle in a field full of haystacks. It's, you need to go right back to what are you trying to do and have a conversation there. Um, I think going back to the, the question of when you have a, an employee who's quite nervous to give that kind of negative result, 
it feels to me like as a as a manager as a leader you need to instill that confidence in them the the methodology that they've gone through and the conclusion they've got to is cast iron and build that confidence that yes it might not want to be what your stakeholders hear but it is also the truth and if obviously there's some kind of um, confidence interval around it and caveat it like that but they need to have it um, have, or feel supported that what they have done is absolutely valid and have the confidence to then present that to a range of difficult stakeholders and to stand by that conclusion. Uh, just a short add there back to what you started with, Natalie, like uh, peer review processes and code review processes are good tools as well to instill that confidence so that you can sort of share your insights in a safe environment and get questions from your peers before taking it to the stakeholders. That can also be quite valuable. Yeah, I, I think that's particularly relevant with maybe more junior analysts as well, who will more likely struggle with those confidence issues that, as you say, uh, Natalie and Daniel, that the support of their colleagues is pretty much invaluable there. Yeah, some really, some really good answers there. Did anyone else have anything else to add just before uh, we move on to the next question? Um, maybe one thing, I guess it kind of links back to the first question a bit, is if something fails, if an A-B test doesn't show a positive response, if an analyst has built up um, an understanding of the business perspective, then having the ability to communicate what next can be a bit of a sweetener to that bad news. They said, this didn't work, but we know from our exploratory work um, intertwined with our data, our business knowledge that this might be an option to consider as well. Or here's a new opportunity. Yeah, and then you can, very good. you can kind of put challenging conversation with supportive action as well. That's a very good thing you raised there, David. Uh, yeah, the ability to add a sweetener or at least a way forward um, does help make the blow land. Yeah, and I think I totally, totally agree. Uh, and I think also basically back to your point again, Natalie, about sort of failure and proving things wrong, why it's so important. It, it's I mean, successes will always be communicated in companies that, that you can rely on because that's sort of in everyone's personal interest. Uh, but communicating failures is, to me, so much more important because the successes will be known. So no one will try to do the same thing again because everyone knows that, yeah, this, this was launched, this worked well. But failures are tricky because if you don't talk about the failures, it, it will be repeated. So I think... The, the lack of talking about failures in an open way or sort of rather talking about learnings uh, as a way to sort of rephrase it uh, is super important. And I think that's one of the maybe key things in a really data-driven culture that failures are always connected to learnings and they are talked about immensely. That's uh, super important. And it's easy to forget, especially I think in Sweden, I think the Swedish culture is 
quite sort of success oriented. We, we don't like to talk about failures, but failures happen all the time for all of us, uh, us four included. Uh, so learn from them, talk about them, uh, spread the knowledge. That's super important. Uh, I would say it's in many cultures, not just the Swedish culture. Seen it <laughs> in across many countries. <laughs> so. Definitely, I think that's a um, sort of a, a really good, a really good way of looking at things, and a good point to make um, to to sort of close off that question as well. So thank you very much for for that. So moving on to sort of the next question now as well, um, we have touched on this a little bit um, already, but this is Daniel's question, and that is, uh, what are some anti patterns for succeeding in an insight? team and what are reasonable expectations slash requirements on stakeholders we work with so daniel if you'd like to give a bit of background as to why um why you asked this question or why you want this question asked answered that'd be great yes um i mean we have touched on it before uh in this conversation uh, but i think it's it's sometimes you can build an amazing analytics team but still have no impact because it's sort of we exist in in uh, coexistence with many other teams and many other disciplines uh, and aligning that towards achieving business value is is the important thing and we, we can do of course our part and we should do and we should of course try to reach out and be proactive and understand our stakeholders deeply i would say because that's uh because there is a gap maybe between, as David mentioned, well, what people asking for a dashboard, but they actually need something else. And we, they might know that they, they might not know that that exists. So, of course, we need to reach out, but also the other way around to have like the data literacy that was mentioned and the culture. So I've, I've been to many places where there is so much effort into like shipping software and it's like, but, but there's no value in shipping software. It's uh, shipping working products that engage our users. That's value. Uh, shipping software is like celebrating that you go to work, uh, to be a bit sort of frank. So, so like, it would be interesting to hear sort of your opinions on how to bridge that gap from also stakeholder side to, to enable us to, to be successful and to support them in, in, in a good way. Um, yeah, I, I can kick off a little bit there. I, I think a huge part of this is the business culture. Um, I, I, to be honest, I had to look up what anti-patterns meant because uh, I hadn't come across that that phrase before. And I was doing some research on anti-patterns, and one of the the ones that really spoke to me, and we, we've covered a little, it a little bit, was one that's called the Death March, and that is leading your team. Uh, towards delivering when there's already a bias uh, from the stakeholder, already uh, a decision that they know they're going to take. And forward we plod to give them some insight that we know is going to have zero impact. And then that's something you want to... ...speak about the cultural piece of why are these uh, stakeholders even working with data analytics or um, other teams if they know they're not going to um, use the output within the decision-making process. 
So perhaps that answers the second second part of the question about uh, requirements and expectations, and not just from the stakeholder, but from the company as a whole. Uh, I I agree. I've seen also these um, when you mentioned like the anti patterns. It's one of the big ones that I see is like there's no no stops or there's no framework for decision making and because there's no framework there's no way of getting data or insights inputted into that decision so the places i've seen it work well where you can actually get it there exists already a framework for like okay it this is milestone one this is when we need to get input from this team this team this team so that we can make a decision together that is when those are the systems I've seen where data really has impacted the decision. But one of the anti-patterns I see is like, rarely is there a framework for decision-making within a company. And that is something that stakeholders can do to like, if they can put it in place, make it very clear within the organization, how decisions are made and when, and what needs to be prepared before that decision, it's easier to uh, work together with the stakeholders. Yeah, good, good inputs. Um, I agree, agree with everything that's that's been said. Uh, I think also the last few years as well, I've fallen quite a lot into the sort of framework things, and we're sort of looking into doing that. Like, how how is the sort of how is the business planning process going about, and sort of what is the input output from from insights? Um, and then, I mean, in the product space, do, do, do we do product discovery work or do we sort of just assume that we know the solution without understanding the problem? And uh, in delivery, sort of, will, I mean, even if we show a neighbor test that doesn't have an, uh, um, a positive impact, will we launch it anyway? Sort of those kind of kind of questions, because then it's, it's hard to make an impact with uh, insights without sort of, being very much in tune with the decision making because that's uh, most of the time uh, the sort of missing piece or what we uh, we need to bridge that gap from both directions to to really create value. Uh, I think we can draw another interesting point from this actually is if we are doing product discovery um, and we are willing to work with insight to what degree do we work with insight? And what I mean by that is within the realm of uh, data analytics, we have blind spots. So we are potentially just looking at transactional data or operational data. That, that's, that's the very end of the journey. To really understand how someone got to that point, you need to consume other uh, insight sources. So web analytics, for example. So now we've got the navigation and we've got the outcome, but still all of that is limited by what's available to the customer. It's all limited by the product as it is. So we need to um, accept that our perspective is limited and we need to actively uh, enlarge the group that we're working with so that means collaborating with, for example, 
uh, UX research because even though someone did something it doesn't mean they wanted to do it and it doesn't even mean they enjoyed doing it it's just what they had to do to reach an end result within our product and so we can start building up this kind of ecosystem of insight functions that can give uh, a totally holistic uh, view and all the different perspectives on the particular problem and that can be really really important in product discovery because we're not just focusing on a single area that could be quite easily manipulated but we actually understand all these different perspectives and how they work together i i can just sort of short short comment on that uh on at, at spotify and soundtrap where i'm now we have uh, also user research in, in in the insights team so we have both the quant and the qual perspective which is super nice because we can answer sort of larger array of questions like uh, not only what happened but also why and what was the like the personal motivation behind the customer using the product in, in that way so that, that's really nice I've worked a lot with user research before but not in the same team so I think that's a very nice nice change and good good learning for for myself as well yeah, definitely. Spotify being kind of one of the, the inspirations for um, a virtual group that we've created at Canby, which is pulling together UX research, web analytics, data analytics and competitive intelligence and all realizing that we answer questions with different perspectives and with different blind spots on our outcomes. So why don't we, we put it all together and try and find those consistencies and try and find those discrepancies that we can look into more. And what we'll probably find is, looking back just at data and web analytics, is that we'll be more effective because suddenly, rather than three different intelligence functions um, outputting to the same stakeholder at different times with slightly different questions and slight misalignments and discrepancies, we can unite behind a, a single narrative um that is going to be far more impactful and covers off all the different angles that we need to yeah i i really like that input because it's i've worked in organizations where yeah like market research is far off you never touch those and then there's user research in another team and then you have data analytics which like this quant and internally there's this feeling of they they sometimes you can get this feeling like they don't know what they're doing like that's the attitude towards this other insight team but once you actually bring these teams together and you see them working together it's, it, it is this like bouncing effect off each other um where they actually raise uh, that value no but so, I, I would like to ask you natalie on like i can imagine on mojang and minecraft i mean it's it's uh you're not doing like microtransactions and things like that so i guess sort of optimizing for fun must be like an important thing so how do you work with like quant versus qual in in, in the type of in the type of game that minecraft is i'm super curious about that it's well the gaming industry is not a data driven like the products aren't data driven from the very beginning. It's very much like you said, it's like optimized for fun and 
most of the products when you see within games is often okay let's launch it and then the rest is like kind of updates and it's not as much insight so most of insights within the gaming industry is often um what's the next game or what's the next feature data analytics within what's the next feature is pretty new um and it's like you say you kind of use the ux designer you're working together with the game designer you're working together with the user researcher you're working together with market research um and it's it's interesting <laughs> like i come from e-commerce before and where it, it is much more this like um yeah, you're optimizing the product slowly and you're building it and the end goal is to get revenue here it's less tangible and that does make it harder for quant to take over so to speak yeah i can imagine it's uh, super interesting I, I guess sort of all companies have stuff like that that are sort of harder to make really tangible and measurable like get epidemic sound we talked about like how good is the music which is a very hard question to quantify uh some things we have at soundtrap now is like what's the correlation between our audio quality and uh, user engagement <laughs> like, I, I don't know we sort of we'll start to look into that but it's, it's, it's those kind of questions that are hard to quantify uh in in a pure quant way yeah it would be questions like what kind of feature does people value? Do people value in a game? Um, and it's it's more important on like when you're launching a new game completely. It's like, is it the multiplayer aspect that they value, or is it the art style, or is it yeah? And you see that it's you can't really separate these different things. It becomes something new. Yeah it's it's an interesting world to be quant driven oh thank you very much i, I can uh, imagine i'm thinking just one thing that i forgot to mention like i think the betting industry is like when it comes to decision making i i usually use the betting industry as an analogy because i mean as you're super aware at Cambi, which is sort of the business model, like the more information you know and the, the like, the more certain you are of an outcome, the more you're willing to bet. Um, and I mean, the same can be, be applied to like product features or I mean, some things are no-brainers. You know it's going to be a success, so bet big. And maybe you don't even have to look at the numbers. You can just sort of it has to be done, and it's uh, going to add value. Some other things are harder. Like we have no idea. It's it's uh, it, it's like a mountain bet that we have very little certainty about. But uh, the upside is uh, huge, so we're willing to bet something. Um, so I think the betting industry is quite fun that way. That it's sort of working with probabilities is pretty ingrained in everyone. Yeah, I, I guess uh, one of one of our roles is to uh, try and improve the certainty around those probabilities um, at the point of a decision being made. Um, I think that 
And now, oh, sorry, I, I got cut off for a, a minute or so, so the conversation might have might have bypassed me um, a little bit. But kind of going back to that cultural piece and where where we fit in, um, and requirements that we need from the business. I mean, we've talked about a lot about um, being used in data um, data driven decisions. Now, when we think what the business is doing from the other side and we think about assumptions that are being made, that's quite an emotional reaction because it's, it's the easy path. We, we all do it. An assumption is an easy path because we feel that if we accept that we don't have all the information available to us, that suggests we're not completely in control. And so when we come to our stakeholders and we're we're challenging those assumptions we have to kind of empathize with their position that they don't want to feel like they're not in control so it's a, it's a very sensitive um conversation that needs to be had yeah diffusing those conversations to make it feel less like personal uh yeah that that is a skill <laughs> And I think there it's a lot about showing empathy. You, you did mention that, like understanding where they are at, and then like yeah, meeting them at that situation where they're losing control is it, a good way of thinking about it. Uh, I I really liked what Daniel said there about like betting and that. It depends on how certain you are on those aspects because it kind of has guided at least me on how I think about data analytics within the gaming industry compared to how I thought about it within e-commerce. So within e-commerce it was very much focused on being data driven. It's kind of like where you're using data to drive the decisions that you're going to make and I think it's because you can feel more certain about that the data that you have is driving in a direction. Within gaming, I can't, I can't give that answer to any feature or any game or anything that they're saying. It's like we can't be certain because it really is hit and miss with games. So that framework that we use within the gaming industry is more of a data informed, and the focus is more like specify your assumptions. Let's see if we can validate it or falsify it. And that is more the way that you work. Um, but uh, it really does map into this. How certain do you feel data can help you in your decision? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, and I like data informed um, and kind of insight informed rather than driven because it's, it's less aggressive, more uh, less combative. Um, and I, I guess kind of going down to that uh, certainty, it, it depends what type of analytics you're doing. If you're doing um, descriptive, uh, then you're kind of looking in the past, you're looking at things that have totally happened, right? They're done. If you're doing diagnostic or if you're doing predictive or if you're going as far as prescriptive, there's always going to be that element of uncertainty. And the more you can um, reduce that uncertainty, the happier people are going to be with using you as a as data source. If you're if you're constantly saying uh, we've got a prediction, but we're about ten percent confident in it, then you're you're not bringing anything to the party. 
But if you're predicting with a really high level of confidence and you're seeing those um, those expectations bear out, you're going to become a really valuable partner. You're reminding me of one of my predictions that I did where I predicted 500,000 in sales plus minus 1 million. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not muted. Um, I think this is super, this could be another hour of discussions, but like, it's important to, I mean, we need to deal with uncertainty regardless of how much data, both qual and quant data you have. There's always uncertainty. So that, that's like a given. You can't be afraid of that. You need like good solid frameworks to deal with that. Otherwise, I think it's dangerous also to move into like analysis paralysis and dig for data points that don't exist. I mean, one sort of inherent weakness with data most of the time is that it's sort of bound to features and functions and users that we have today. Data will probably not always tell you what is the right decision to take. So I think taking a gut feeling uh, semi-informed decision, I think that's perfectly fine, but you can't evaluate the decision with gut feeling. That That's sort of the firmness. Take the decision on a hunch, that's fine. Uh, just sort of be aware of how certain uncertain it is and validate it as early and cheaply as possible. And that is sort of why I like the uh, sort of Silicon Valley group and the, the sort of empowered inspired frameworks that from Marty Kagan, because he mentions like the four product risks, that's like the, the business viability, the, the, the value risk and the feasibility risk and usability risk. And that's quite a good framework for checking where you are. Like how, how do you rate on those? and when are you prepared to make a decision? Um, what, what is like a, a reasonable usability risk to take in an experiment to, to sort of nail the MVP status or to avoid sort of things being underworked or overworked? So I think there are good, a lot of good frameworks that, that can be utilized that sort of addresses that problem. I know that Jeff Bezos has also stated some frameworks on like decision making and uh, decisions that can be reversed versus uh, not be reversed and so on. Definitely, I think um, it, everyone's made some really good points um, throughout. Does anyone have anything to add sort of on a final note just before we close up? No? Perfect. Well, then we'll leave it there then. Um, just want to say thank you. Um, thank you everyone for getting involved um, and thanks to everyone that's, that's listening as well.